An Air France A380 is on its way from Paris to Los Angeles, passing over Greenland, when a sudden bang is heard. What caused this flight to make an emergency stop in Canada? If you're searching for a podcast about crime relating to actual life events of military personnel, veterans, family members, and those associated with the military in any way, then we know the podcast for you. The Military True Crime Addict podcast explores a plethora of true crime stories that have not been reported on by news outlets or media, stories that, upon hearing, you will be astounded by. History on these cases should have been told and reported on long ago. There are detailed stories that touch on topics such as assault, harassment, sexual preference, abuse of power, murder, hazing, rape, and all the stories that in some way relate to our military veterans and their extended families. Also, there are episodes on serial killers with military backgrounds that you will also not believe. On the Military True Crime Addict podcast, the host, David, provides a voice to the victims and a chance to hear their side of this story. He wants to raise awareness of the heinous crimes and those most impacted by those crimes. You do not need to know anything about the military to enjoy this podcast. You can hear original true crime stories with the specifics of what occurred. So make sure to check out the Military True Crime Addict podcast on your favorite podcast app now. Again, check out the Military True Crime Addict podcast now where you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow them on Facebook at Military True Crime Addict or go to their website, MilitaryTrueCrimeAddict.com. Welcome back to the Hard Landings podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. And today we have... The other guy. The other guy. Brendan's yeah. back. There was someone yes. who said, I like that new other guy it's on like, one of the posts we had. not really oh, new, you. but yeah. <laughs> not really new, but yeah. Any housekeeping? Not I don't that know. I know we, of. We okay. Haven't, we haven't recorded in a little while and a lot has happened. Yeah. Like, a lot. A lot. Nick got a kidney stone. Yeah, I got a kidney stone. Oh, we, right. We haven't recorded since that. Yeah, I got a kidney stone. We, I mean, we recorded a Miranda sode. Oh, that's true. There, but, but they would only know that if they had were the a Miranda patron. Stone. Yeah. So for everybody else, yes, I had a kidney stone, and it was very painful. Very unpleasant. So there's kidney stone. We had two feet of snow. Uh, finish moving. I don't know. There's all sorts of stuff going on. Nick right. and Brendan flew this morning. Yeah, we flew this morning. First time I got to fly with him since his, his certificate. Very interesting flight. It was, actually. We'll probably talk about it in the post-episode. And then Miranda, Brendan, and I are going on Thursday. Yeah. Yeah. So in a couple days. Did we figure out what we wanted to do for the spring, for the April episodes? Oh, rainy events. Oh, right. So April showers, you know the phrase. Yeah. So for April, for listener episodes, tell us your rainy stories. What happened in the rain? Yeah, your weather-related items. Yeah. All right. I, th- I think that's it for housekeeping. Okay. So what are we covering today, Nick? So today we are covering Air France Flight 66. And thank you to our patron, Kevin, for recommending this episode. Thanks, Kevin. This is a very, very recent incident. How recent was it? If this <laughs> happened on September 30th of 2017. It is not the most reason. it's not the most recent event that we've covered. No, but, but this is the newest report we've ever covered. Yes, this report just came out in September of 2020. So, new stuff. New stuff. This was an Airbus A380. A big in. Big in. 
Big airplane. With detail number Foxtrot Dash Hotel Papa Juliet Echo. This was a flight, a scheduled flight from Paris Charles de Gaulle Airport to Los Angeles International in Los Angeles, California. Nice long flight. I don't have any names for the crew members, probably because a lot of them are still active crew members. Makes sense. But I do have ages and hours at the time, anyways. The captain was 60 years old. He had 19,568 hours total, of which 3,249 hours were on the A380. By far and away, the most experienced pilot in the cockpit, and the most experienced on the type in this cockpit. The first officer was 45 years old. He had 8,549 hours total, of which 796 hours were on the A380. The second first officer was 42 years old, had 8,811 hours total, of which 260 hours were on the type. So the least experienced on the type, but the second most experienced in the cockpit. Two first officers, because this was a long flight, and there would have to be crew rest yeah. periods, so they would have to alternate. Speech. Yep. There were 497 passengers scheduled on this flight, Holy which is by cow. far and away the most full airplane we've ever had on this podcast. Oh, so many people. Yes, 497 passengers and 24 crew members. Ah, those pre-COVID days. Ah, yes, ah. pre-COVID days. <laughs> I think Emirates still has an A380 that has like 615 seats in it yeah the flight departed paris at 10 50 a.m from charles de gaulle from charles de gaulle flight was scheduled to fly at flight level 330 which it reached 25 minutes after takeoff but then had a few flight level changes by air traffic control until it reached flight level 370 at 12 14 p.m paris time where it then stabilized for its flight very common as they burn more more fuel, they get lighter. Yeah, they get lighter, and they just keep climbing, climbing, climbing. The second first officer took the right seat 30 minutes after takeoff. The flight progressed without issue for a long period of time. As the plane was flying about 100 nautical miles south of Greenland, the flight was able to make written communication contact with the Gander Oceanic Control Center for control services. That just means it was done over a computer and not verbally. Right, exactly. So this was done by the onboard computer systems in the airplane. They weren't able to make radio contact, but they were able to make written contact. So they were able to exchange written information back and forth by computer, by satellite, like that. I mean, it's fast anyways. When this happened, they did request a climb to flight level 380 at 1048 Greenland time, 1048 a.m. Greenland time, so we've... Gone back some hours, but we're actually, just because we're flying, uh, really far north. At this point, they were overflying Greenland. The controller accepted the request and asked the flight to report when they reached flight level 380. They would never get there. The throttles increased as the plane began to climb for that flight level 380, but less than a minute later, a loud bang was heard, followed by a heavy vibration. That's never good. Nope. Passengers immediately noticed that the number four engine on the right wing, the furthest engine from the fuselage, had experienced a very heavy failure and was missing the whole front portion of the engine. Oh, no. An uncontained engine failure had caused some portions of the leading edge of the wing to be damaged as well as portions of the fuselage. Immediately after the failure, the airplane began to turn to the right at a rate of three degrees and three seconds. The heavy vibrations were felt for about four seconds following the failure. The crew immediately assumed that there was an engine surging, not a failure, a surging. 
A message popped up on the ECAM, or the Electronic Centralized Aircraft Monitoring System, that read ENG4 stall. In other words, the number four engine isn't operating. It stalled out. The captain immediately called for, quote, ECAM actions, end quote, signaling the first officer in the right seat to start reading and interpreting the ECAM procedures to handle the emergency. So the ECAM procedures, when an emergency like this happens on the E380, it's all digitalized now. So the airplane immediately starts giving you actions to prevent further emergency and pre prevent further damage, things like that. So the the airplane starts suggesting all these things to to change in the systems of the airplane to prevent things from getting worse. Right. The ECAM is the computer? Yes. Yeah. It was, if you go back to QF-32, Qantas Flight 32, that flight, they that happened before this one on the A380, and the ECAM system in that one caused them an hour delay landing because there were so many Messages. ECAM actions to complete. to complete before they could land. That was a mess. So, since then, things had changed. The captain engaged Autopilot 1 and announced that he was taking the controls as pilot flying. This allows some of the functions of the autopilot to continue operating, but would also allow the captain to fly the airplane manually to avoid deviating far off of their course or the airplane entering any unusual or unexpected maneuvers. So That's kind of cool. Yeah, so it allows the, the autopilot to kind of still maintain control of the airplane to some extent, but he's still got manual control of the airplane just in case. He then reduced the power to the number 4 engine down to idle. The engine performed an automatic shutdown at that point, so even though it stalled, there were still some operating functions in the engine. So at this point, when he reduced the the engine thrust down to idle, the engine automatically shut down because of the stall. It's amazing what technology can do. It is crazy. A few seconds later, the second first officer ensured that the engine was indeed shut down by toggling the engine four master switch and the engine four fire push button. So just making sure. Pretty much flooded the thing and said, nope, we don't want this running. Off. In all ways possible. The crew were unable to see the damaged engine from the cockpit or from the tail-mounted camera, which, if you've never seen that, look that up at the A380 tail-mounted cameras. It's pretty cool. In the cabin, passengers and crew were observing the engine damage, and a passenger took a picture on their phone, which a cabin crew member brought to the flight deck to show the crew. Yay, smartphones! <laughs> yes, this was the first time the crew kind of realized the gravity of their situation, flying over nowhere. The first officer, the original first officer, had returned to the cockpit to assist with the issue, and was sent to the upper deck to survey the damage and take more photos, so they could determine more about what was happening. He was able to see the damage to the slats and the leading edge, and he was able to observe a vibration in the flaps as well. So, not good. Not, not terrible. Not good. This was reported to the captain, who began the Air France incident processing me method called 4-DEC. F-O-R-D-E-C. It stands for Facts, Options, Risks and Benefits, Decide, Execution, and Check. Ah, more abbreviations. <laughs> yes. This is Air France's procedures for handling unusual situations. So, basically, you know, you you collect facts about what's happening, weigh your options, determine the risks and the benefits, and then make a decision, execute that decision, and then check from there. Sounds like something my school would do. Yeah, know? it's kind of a, it's kind of, I mean, like it's a, one of those abbreviations like plan, 
act. It's review. I mean, you think about it, it is a teaching tool, so that is kind of the point. (laughs) Par. That's what you just came up with. (laughs) (laughs) Now we're playing golf. (laughs) For the one minute and and 30 seconds that followed the engine failure, the plane had gone from 277 knots down to 258 knots indicated, which, when you're flying at flight level 370, is quite the drop in speed, actually. And they had managed to maintain flight level 370 at the time. The captain noticed the speed reduction and decided to descend the airplane down to the drift down altitude that was calculated by the airplane as being flight level 346, so in other words, 34,600 feet. So the drift down altitude is, in theory, the airplane calculated that engine isn't operating, but the other three are. The airplane can maintain speed and altitude down at at thirty four thousand six hundred feet. Yeah, at least the airplane. Yeah, the airplane at that altitude or below would be able to maintain. hold speed. Yeah, hold speed, hold altitude. And it figure this out without it being commanded to figure it out. No, I think it was part of the ECAM actions, oh, okay. but but it did calculate it and it, it to told say, them. I'm about to say like. That's a smart airplane. <laughs> yeah, it, it might have, but yeah. it... Who knows? But, yeah, based on weight, based on all those things, it, it calculated, it figured out 34,600 feet. The airplane continued to have trouble holding speed at various flight levels, however, so they continued descending past that 34,600 feet. So they finally reached flight level 310, and they seemed to stabilize. But then the other three engines were losing some thrust down to 103% N2 rotation speed, so that's the... Uh, second portion of the compressor. So the, the airplane is capable of 111% in flight, but typically up there they do about 107%. So at the very high end, so when they're at full thrust, basically. But the engines were... The power just wasn't there. They were reduced down to 103%, so they weren't maintaining speed or altitude very well, even at 31,000 feet. The captain decided to descend down to flight level 290, so 29,000 feet, where the speed and altitude both stabilized. The speed was 290 knots. But this was only possible with maximum continuous thrust from the three engines. So they were able to maintain that speed, but they were full throttle on the other three engines. This was not an ideal situation, so the captain decided to descend once more down to flight level 270, so 27,000 feet, to allow the engines to slow a bit and to maintain stabilized parameters. They stabilized at 279 knots, so about 11 knots slower. So, But this allowed them to throttle back a little bit and have that little bit of extra thrust should they need it. Each time a descent was initiated, the crew had to stop performing the ECAM actions until stabilized. Then they would continue. So there were still a lot of things going on in the cockpit, but each time they needed to do one of these descents, which I think they did a total of like six, they had to stop doing these ECAM procedures until the airplane was stabilized again. Which makes sense. You want to make sure that it's safe before you just start taking stuff off a list. Yes. Five minutes after the crew had initiated their descent, the Gander Oceanic Controller noticed the descent and sent a written message to the plane, quote, ATC now shows you FL-330. Is there a problem? End quote. So, he noticed. Simultaneously, the control center received a radio mayday message from Air France 66 that was relayed by another airplane. So they had managed to pass a message on through another airplane that they had a mayday. Could they not use their radio? Or were they they too far away? They were too far away. Oh, okay. They were too far away still. Uh, A minute later, the second first officer responded to the written message with, Mayday! 
There you go. There you go. So <laughs> yes. they got it. They got it twice. They got it once by radio from a, a relaying airplane, and then once by written direct from the airplane. Uh, direct air traffic control communications was made a few minutes later on one three two point three seven megahertz frequency. The crew discussed options with the air traffic controller, and a decision was made to divert to Goose Bay Airport in Canada. It was the nearest airport that could safely support the aircraft. There was one in Greenland that was possible, but it wasn't ideal, considering where they were and where they were going. And it's actually also very common. This airport is usually, and has for a very long time, been that emergency airport for most heavy traffic crossing the Atlantic when they encounter an emergency going westbound. Because it has the facilities to do so, and it's kind of the first place you see once you get over mainland North America. The airplane began descending and then was cleared for an RNAV approach for runway 26 at Goose Bay. The airplane had a relatively rapid descent to the airport. The air traffic controller then cleared the flight to land. As the flight reached 1,000 feet, the captain disconnected the autopilot and the flight director completely and manually flew the airplane for the remainder of the flight, which isn't very long, obviously. The airplane landed safely. At 12.42 p.m. local time. Huzzah! Stop it. Huzzah. Huzzah. Once on the ground, the airplane was able to taxi under its own power to a parking location. However, it had to taxi back down the runway because the taxiways were too small for it. Ah. And this took some time, as it had to stop several times to allow airport ops to collect the debris that it left on the runway when it landed. Oh, well... Yeah, that, that would be a, a yes, problem. Yes. so that they didn't run it over and cause more problems. Last thing you need is a pop tire. Yeah. At 1.22 p.m. local time, the airplane was parked and all three remaining engines were shut down. Nobody perished and nobody was injured in this incident, which... Good. Yeah, great. Yeah, I guess. But... <laughs> But this wasn't exactly a fun experience for anybody on board when they had to fly for hours with an engine, you know, not working and looking horrible. Passengers were not not very happy with that situation, not very comfortable with that situation, of course. And it gets worse because the cabin crew and the airline ground crew at Montreal and New York assisted the passengers to ensure that they were comfortable, especially since they were not allowed to leave the airport as they did not have enough customs agents to handle the number of passengers. Bruh, that okay. sucks. The, so, they had like 500 people. Yeah. Yeah, that still sucks. I mean, <laughs> yes. you just got through a, a flight where you were looking out the window at a half of an engine. <laughs> and you get, yes. and all you want to do is like go to bed and you can't leave the airport. Right. Some passengers were allowed to enter the terminal, but they were to then return to the plane a while later where a meal was served. That was nice of them. The captain met with the passengers in groups of 50. To explain the situation and to assist them in being rerouted to L.A. by the company. So that was good of the company. But I, uh, I feel like they kind of have to do that. Yeah, they pretty much do. <laughs> Welcome to Goose Bay. Figure out how to get to uh, L.A. yourself. Yeah. Figure it out. Figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. So, so, so here's how bad it really was, though. Because this doesn't really put many things in perspective. Because there's not many stories I've been able to find. But the airplane landed at... 12.42 p.m., so almost 1 o'clock in the afternoon on the 30th of September, and the last passenger finally left the airplane at 5 a.m. the next morning. Ugh. Yikes. It's probably not too bad, considering... 
it is an A380. Like. It is an A380. It was probably relatively comfortable. They had meals served, and I'm sure they were doing everything they could to keep them comfortable. Um, and if you know anything about Goose Bay, and just kind of Canada in general, um, nice. the community is really helpful. Yeah. So Air France also was being very helpful. Their teams in New York and Montreal were working very hard to make sure that planes got to Goose Bay, Goose Bay so they to could get take these passengers, passengers out. Yeah. So yeah, there was there was a lot done, and it it was good. I mean, nobody nobody was hurt. Nothing really terrible, but obviously massive delay for some people. Yeah. By more than a day, I'm sure. It probably took about two days worth of extra time to get to L.A. Hopefully you didn't have, like, a business meeting the next day or whatever. Yeah, no kidding. Well, that was like, canceled, I'm sure. Uh, sorry, friends. I'm stuck in Canada right now. Yeah, and in Goose Bay, who knows? You probably don't even have phone service. <laughs> <laughs> it was immediately apparent that the number four engine was missing large portions of the forward section, including the engine inlet, the hub, and the forwardmost fan, along with the engine cowlings on both sides and several other fans. That's horrifying. Yeah, various pieces of debris were found further in the engine, which blocked it from rotating. As well as on the runway. That would do it. That would do it. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Found the problem. Yep. All other damage to the aircraft was attributed to the uncontained engine failure debris that struck the airplane itself. So the fuselage did have several points of damage. The wing, of course, had damage due to the uncontained engine failure. Uh, it would become key to the investigation, however, that the major missing pieces be located. This investigation was carried out by the... Ugh. Bureau d'enquête d'analyse pour la sécurité de l'aviation civile. Also known as the BEA. <laughs> yeah, the BEA. We'll just go with the BEA. It's the French Investigative <laughs> Authority. I, I probably still butchered one or two of those words, but honestly, like... You also did did the more Belgian-French thing. A little bit. That's kind of what I'm used to, so... <laughs> Somewhat obviously, immediately after the incident, both black boxes were successfully recovered. Um, the airplane was whole. Are you sure about that? The fuselage was good. <laughs> well, yeah, and the tail was intact. But yes. what wasn't recovered was the missing part of the engine. The fan, hub, blades, etc. Yep. In order to find it, a lot of calculations had to be performed. Now, this engine was manufactured by Engine Alliance, which, to make matters simple, was an alliance... Between two engine manufacturers <laughs> that you've probably heard of, if not before then, one of them quite recently with the engine incident in Denver. The two manufacturers involved were General Electric, or GE, and Pratt & Whitney. Mm. Yes. So they conducted the search in phases. And phase one was relatively simple. It's about what you expect. The first phase to the search required determining and designating a, quote, rough zone, end quote where debris was likely to be found, and to recover all parts that could be visually found. Now, mind you, this happened over Greenland. So, there is just ice, and airplane parts generally aren't white inside the engine. So, they were relatively easy to visually spot on a large, flat, white surface. Right. However. Three helicopter flights were carried out between October 4th and October 11th, using data based on the FDR. In the first two flights, 30 pieces of debris were recovered, but several key pieces were not recovered, and the third flight did not find any pieces at all. The snow and wind had covered any other parts that were not recovered, so the search team decided to end the first phase of the search on October 12th. More searching was going to be critical, however. 
So at this point in the investigation, it wasn't too difficult for Pratt & Whitney to set up an Initial Finite Element Analysis, or FEA, so as to help find the missing parts as well as determine what happened. Now, a lot of you might be wondering what exactly that is, and I have taken several classes in it. Thank goodness. When you first start learning mechanical analysis, you learn on very simple things. Blocks, cylinders, triangles, very elementary shapes, if you will. It may come as a shock to you, but most things in life are not that simple of a shape. Turns out. Turns out. Turns out. So doing advanced math on anything that isn't blocks, cylinders, and triangles is actually quite difficult. Rather than make the math super complicated, we engineers decided to just divide up complicated parts into smaller, more simple shapes. It's almost like pixelating it for analysis, and the smaller and more of those quote-unquote pixels you have, the more accurate your analysis will be, though it will take longer. You can do it in blocks, triangles, or whatever your math mind desires, but also doing it by hand is a pain, so we have computer software for that. When I was in school, I did FEA on bones, on which the materials level is much more complicated than what we have to deal with here, which is a solid piece of metal. Pratt & Whitney's finite element model was used to determine the likely mass, size, and ejection vo velocity and angle to help rescue teams determine where the heck it flew to over Greenland. The stipulation with FEA is your initial conditions. What forces, where, what boundary conditions do you have, etc.? The unfortunate part in this instance was they didn't have most of that. So they used their test results from certification, specifically from their fan blade out and bird ingestion models, as some boundary conditions in their analysis. But they ultimately determined that the model results were only valid for the first 20 to 30 milliseconds after starting the failure sequence. Because one of the conditions they didn't have was the location of the origin of the failure, investigators and Pratt and & Whitney had to test several different scenarios to determine what matched the remains of Engine 4 the best. This initial condition ended up being a fan hub bore-to-rim failure, which really could have been any number of things, including, quote, cracks in a fan blade slot bottom, a buried material defect, or cracks resulting from front face scallop damage, the underlying assumption being that the reason for the crack would not influence the results of the ultimate hub fracture, end quote. They, Interesting. Yep. They tested other scenarios such as a failure of a fan blade in the middle or at the root, and the failure of a blade lug, but these did not match the wreckage. So, that's what the model looks like versus the wreckage. Interesting, though, how, how much, I mean, they were able to determine even and use based on their modeling, though. Yeah. Regardless. I'll let you keep going because it gets it's pretty interesting. Yeah. So this whole process takes months. So they started it after the first phase. But while this was still happening, they had to begin the second phase. This resumed search in April and May of 2018. Why did they wait so long, you might ask? Well, the area isn't um, reachable in the winter. Yeah. Because it's cold. And the and spring. snowy. Yep. And dark. There's a lot of reasons. And the spring was the soonest that they could physically go. They used two means of searching. Aerial searches with synthetic aperture radars on a plane to detect parts under the snow, as well as ground searches using ground-penetrating radar, such as that which is usually used when looking for dead bodies. There's your true crime thrown in there. Great. Search crews were also given estimates of the projectiles and their possible landing zones as calculated by the NTSB and Airbus. Despite all of these resources, the fan hub fragments were still not detected by the end of June. 
Wow. The aerial radars were fairly new technology, and the snow created a lot of unexpected background noise or signal noise. But the experts said that if they improved the signal processing of the radar, they could still find the parts. So the BEA agreed to pause the searches. Now for phase three of the search. The finite element analysis from earlier helped investigators refine and reduce the search zone. We're now at the end of 2018. A new contender emerged to help with the search. The hydrogeophysics group of Aarhus University and Denmark presented their electromagnetic detection system, which could detect titanium at a distance of 5 to 6 meters under the snow. The aerial radar had better results now, too. So in February 2019, everyone agreed to begin searches again in May 2019, but were once again delayed due to weather. But during the delay, the aerial radar found a promising spot, and crews launched finally in June 2019, and a fan hub fragment was extracted and brought to the Narsarswak airport. Lovely. You I probably did about as well on that as I would. I tried. If you've ever seen the names of towns or airports or anything in Greenland, I, anything I, in that, I, I can hardly even try. Anything in that part of the world. Yes. yes. <laughs> so now the BEA and Pratt & Whitney had the fan hub fragment and some blades to study. It did not take them long to diagnose the hub failure as LCF, or low cycle fatigue. 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 The crack began in basically the center of slot 10. So there are, I think, 24 fan blades, and they're all stuck in the slots. And so it was basically in the center of slot 10, and it was 5.6 inches behind the front face of the hub, 1.4 millimeters, or 0.055 inches below the surface. As always, there are pictures on our website to reference. I just wanted to point out something incredible, too. So, now that you've seen the picture of that, to put it a little bit more into perspective how big that was, and also how, in two years, how deep they had to go with the radar to find this, that's where it was. Ooh. Damn. Yeah, in two pretty, years. That's pretty uh, in there. It was buried, like, 20 feet deep in the snow. Yeah, solid. So, the fracture started here. Yeah. So it wasn't even the fan blade, it was just the whole... It's the whole yeah. hub assembly. Yeah. Um, they determined using the FEA that it wasn't a fan blade, it wouldn't have caused the same damage. It was actually in the fan hub. Huh. I mean, so you're talking about... We'll get to this more later, but this shows... I mean, this is a very, very, very recent investigation and report. But it shows how incredibly far forward we've gone with, like... Technology and science and math in using that to our advantage, even in situations like this. Like, yes, nobody died, but we need to figure out how to make this not happen again anyways, because that was freaking horrifying. 20 years ago, I don't think they would have been able to find this part. Oh, this this hub would have been lost, lost to the snow. That is it. So, how did they know it was a low-cycle fatigue failure? When metal undergoes fatigue, it means that it undergoes a stress on-off, on-off repeatedly thousands of times. For each of those loadings, it leaves a mark like a tiny microscopic tree ring called a striation. You literally need a scanning electron microscope or SEM to see them. And these were found in the fracture surface of slot 10. In this case, they were evenly spaced, and Pratt & Whitney counted them to determine how long ago the crack started. At this point, it was and is generally accepted that one striation is one flight cycle, and there were about 1,652 striations. Holy moly. That's a lot yeah. of flights. That's a lot of counting. Yep. They didn't count each individual one. They did math. I was going to say, can you imagine <laughs> sitting down going one, two, hundred, do 
to, and then you lose yeah. count. You're like, I got Free start interns over. is available. <laughs> <laughs> From the quality of the striations, they were also able to determine that 773 cycles occurred in a vacuum before the surface became exposed to air. Okay, you thought I was sciency before? Fasten your seatbelts. We're diving deeper. I don't have a seatbelt. <laughs> I would buckle it if I had one. Okay, sounds good. Thank you. I have hypothetically buckled my seatbelt. Metals and alloys are arranged so that their atoms fall into a crystalline structure. The most simple of these looks like a 3D grid structure, and as such is called simple cubic. You imagine a cube, and you have an atom at each corner. Different materials have different variations of this, such as a body-centered cubic and face-centered cubic. Pure titanium is arranged not cubically, but hexagonally, kind of like honeycomb. Let's call this structure the alpha phase. Science. Science. Shapes. <laughs> Shapes. So, so it's a hexagon. So imagine a hexagon of atoms, and then one atom in the middle of that, and you have two of those stacked on top of each other. Right. And between them, you have three other atoms in a tiny triangle. That's okay. what this looks like. In the alpha phase, the stiffness of titanium changes depending on which direction you push or pull it because of its hexagonal structure. So in one of the images on our website, you can see the different planes within each unit and the different ways you pull on it change how stiff the titanium is. Mm -hmm. But when heated to 882 degrees Celsius, titanium becomes one of the cubic structures, body-centered cubic, which we will call beta phase. So for body-centered cubic, it looks like the cube I asked you to picture before, but now there's an atom directly in the middle of the cube. Body-centered, yeah. But that's for pure titanium, and that's not what this part was made of. No, it was probably mixed in with other stuff, yep, right? Yep, it is. So it was made of titanium, aluminum, and vanadium, a alloy called titanium 6-4. And at room temperature, it's a mix of alpha and beta phase. So it's a mix of the hexagonal and the body-centered cubic. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> yeah. I can see how that could get a little confusing. A little bit. A little bit. So with all this in mind, Pratt & Whitney analyzed the crack origin area and found no chemical or microstructure or manufacturing anomaly that would have caused the crack. And many metallurgical and mechanical tests were performed and found that the titanium alloy was processed properly and conformed to Pratt and Whitney requirements for the material. So... What happened? So what happened? Well, it seems like nothing happened. Seems like Apparently it, Apparently right? <laughs> something pretty critical happened. <laughs> well, the crack started in a region called a microtexture region, or MTR, or macrozone. All of these are used interchangeably. Isn't micro and macro... Opposings. So yes. it's micro texture, but a macro zone. So a small texture in a large zone? Yes. Interesting. These regions have a group of grains with a preferred crystalline orientation. So you know how I said before, pulling on the hexagons different directions? Yeah. So now imagine a bunch of these all facing the same direction, so it is definitely weak in one direction. Uh-oh. I can see where this is going. These happen naturally during the forging process, these zones, and the size and frequency of them vary with different forging techniques. You can't not have them. The macrozone in question was oriented such that its weak direction was in the same direction as the hoop stress or circumferential stress that comes with being part of a rotating engine. Oh, well, that's unfortunate. Yet? Are well, you lost yet? So basically, it means that the place that would is the weakest to pull to break it 
is the same is the circumference yeah is the same as the force that would be used to rotate rotate the engine yes which is like that seems like fairly not great for an engine (laughs) yeah you know i miss the shapes (laughs) (laughs) what the metallurgist found was that these regions are susceptible to fatigue in particular in this instance to cold dwell fatigue now if you've been with us for a while you've heard me talk about fatigue But that's a new term. Well, it was new for me too, actually. (laughs) It's new because it wasn't super relevant until this incident, and this report just came out in September 2020. Is it because they were over a place that was so cold? No. (laughs) No. I don't know. I made made an educated guess. But nice try. Nice try. Because they were... It turns out... uh, Not cold. Well, and also, for atmospheric talk, when you get the airplanes up that high, typically, actually, the temperature doesn't fluctuate, but a couple of degrees Celsius. Anywhere on Earth. I mean, it's pretty pretty much the same up yeah. that high. Yeah, but it's pretty cold up there. Yeah, but then you get everything running hot. You got friction, things like that. Kind of keeps everything in a pretty similar range. Yeah, I'll get there in a second. So this term was new for me, too. And it, this report wasn't published when I was taking my Mechanics of Materials class with the infamous Dr. Chris Yakaki, which is where I learned all of this atomic structure loveliness. So I have to take it back a second. There is a form of deformation called creep, and it normally exists primarily in polymers. The best example I can give you is when you hang your heavy coat on a plastic hanger and leave it in the closet until next winter. The hanger is now bent, even though it was in a perfect shape when you put it in the closet. It deforms over time. It doesn't deform instantly, like when you pull on it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So metals creep too, but they normally do that at much higher temperatures. There is one exception to that titanium excellent titanium creeps at room temperature a special kind of creep called cold creep since it's at a relatively cold temperature compared to most metal creep so that's why it's called cold another term for this is cold dwell because it's dwelling on a load over time so what does cold dwell fatigue mean normal fatigue is on off on off on off Cold dwell fatigue is off, on, stay on, off. On, stay on, off. There is some literature regarding how titanium is susceptible to this, especially when it has high levels of alpha phase. Prior to this event, alpha and beta phase alloys, like titanium-64, were considered to, quote, have little or no sensitivity to cold dwell fatigue, end quote. Because it has that beta phase thrown in there, too. It has those cubes as well as the hexagons. So no worries, right? Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> many parts over many years have been made with titanium-64 without a problem. And although there was some research into titanium cold dwell fatigue, no one really understood how the initial crack would originate. But when testing samples of titanium alloy for cold dwell, it is not representative of the macro zones I spoke of earlier and how they occur in large airplane parts. So when you're testing titanium alloy, you usually do it in smaller pieces. You don't want to just rip a whole engine part apart. Right. But because of how small it is, you don't have the full representation of macro zones in that tiny little test part. So would this just occur on this plane because this specific, the zones, the weak zones, were where the the stress was circulating in the engine? Yes. Correct. So 
the only that's the only reason it happened, right? Because mm-hmm. that's where the weak zones in that specific engine were. Yep. So it could happen to another engine, but they would have to know that those zones are specifically where these zones and were. And oriented that way. Right. Investigators determined that the origin definitely occurred in the macro zone. And then in the years between this incident and the report being published, two different fan blades, both made of titanium 6-4, failed from cold well fatigue with the cracks originating in or near micro- macro zones. And since then, airworthiness directives have been issued to perform ultrasonic inspections for those engine-type fan blades. So, you it's, can see if it's, it's been detectable. Fatigued. Yeah. In regards to cold fatigue, investigators say, quote, This accident revealed a failure phenomenon which had not been observed on the titanium alloy titanium 6-4 and was difficult to anticipate. The factors conducive to its appearance are being studied by manufacturers and need to be analyzed in detail, end quote. So basically, they're still investigating it. There's no way to predict it currently. Unless you know, know where those specific zones are. Yep. And how stress on that specific part will affect those zones. Because you have to know the angle of the the grains in that zone. Right. And the only way to do that was a, an electron microscope. Yeah, we're right. talking, I mean, extremely small little itty-bitty teeny tiny parts. Now, that doesn't mean that you should be scared of this happening repetitively. No. Because the crack can still be detected using normal detection methods. Yes, and we'll talk about that later. So... This part is normally supposed to last around 15,000 cycles, and the crack initiated at 1,880 cycles, and around 1,650 cycles occurred before the critical fracture, meaning that this part lasted about 23% of the life it should have. The BEA emphasized that there was no way for maintenance to predict that this would happen or detect the fatigue while it was below the surface, and the lack of guidance regarding manufacturing with macrozones built the groundwork for this incident. It wasn't anyone's fault. No. Well, right. we've—I mean, when we've talked about fatigue before, it's so hard to know when a part has been fatigued until you can actually see the crack, and at that point, usually, it's too late. Well, and the other thing is—I mean, yes, this can be found with typical methods of finding fatigue, but this is such a different kind of fatigue. Like that- I literally wasn't taught about it. You weren't taught about it because this incident is what has brought this to the attention of scientists in the world. I did mention that that it had been researched earlier. Yes, but that doesn't mean that it was understood, which it still isn't, we can say. So it had happened on a Lockheed L-1011 before, Mm -hmm. but that part was made of titanium, not titanium alloy, which is why everyone's like, as long as you use titanium alloy, it'll be fine. It wasn't fine. wasn't fine. JK. Not fine. Not Not fine. fine. We gonna take a brickety break. We're gonna take a brickety break. And then we're gonna come back with you and get some findings. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, so we're back. So we're going to dive into findings. Sorry for the science vomit. It's okay. It's actually going to be really helpful when we go through the findings because it kind of comes out a lot in these findings as well. I mean, it was a a big part of the ac- 
accident. It is. Yes. But but again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reiterate this because it is interesting when you think about how deep that goes into an issue that didn't kill anybody. How, first of all, aviation has progressed. The airplane's safe. It landed safely without a whole lot of incident, without really any issues. But the other thing is that there's so much more technology, usable technology involved these days that these reports have come so far. Like, super detailed information. And we're able to determine so many more things that back in the past it was like, mm, I don't know, something happened and we don't want it to happen again, but let's just make it out of something else. That's pretty much what they would do, rather yep. than determine what actually happened and how to fix it. So we can find a small piece of metal in the middle of Greenland yes. under a bunch of snow. 20 <laughs> feet of snow. Yeah, we can't find a plane in Lake Michigan. And we can't find a plane in the middle of the Indian Ocean. Yes. That too. Hey, it's new technology. Maybe they just haven't tried it yet. I guess. It's a large airplane. Several large airplanes they're looking for. One of them's a little more frantic than the other. Mm, yeah, but still. Alright, so findings. So I narrowed these down a bit. They found that in cruise climb over Greenland, strong vibrations appeared with the airplane simultaneously yawing to the right. Several failure messages concerning the in engine installed in the right outer position were displayed on the ECAM, quote, ENG4 stall, end quote, and ENG4 fail. They found that the front part of engine number four, including the fan hub, air inlet, and associated fairings, had separated. No, really. Yeah. <laughs> they fact. weren't there when the airplane landed. The whole world saw the pictures within 24 hours. They found that debris struck the wing, airframe, and trimmable horizontal stabilizer without any significant consequences. However, I would argue that's not entirely true. Because, yes, it struck the surfaces, it wasn't that consequential, but the airplane did have a really hard time maintaining speed and altitude based on its own calculations. Which were pretty high-level calculations it had to do to figure out under its own weight and power availability what it would be able to maintain. Well, yeah, but at least they didn't, like, lose a horizontal stabilizer or something. Agreed. That it would have been catastrophic. Agreed. It wasn't any kind of catastrophic anything, but it did show that the airplane wasn't right. <laughs> because it was in a more severe circumstance than the airplane was prepared for. It's prepared for an engine failure, not an uncontained engine failure. Big difference. They found that the captain took the controls and became the pilot flying again, which... It was interesting because, I mean, he definitely took over control and he definitely did a really good job. But we've been seeing it more and more in modern aviation that the pilot flying, typically in a scenario, remains the pilot flying, even in an emergency situation. It's only usually under extreme circumstances that it would switch over. However, this captain did have significantly more experience than the A380, and he immediately knew the things that he wanted to accomplish based on Air France's procedures, the foredeck. They found that the first, the original first officer who had been in the crew rest station came into the cockpit to help the crew flying. They found that the crew observed the damage to engine number four from photos taken by a passenger. The original first officer confirmed the actual and visible nature of the damage from the cabin. They found that the crew were surprised and concerned by the need to stabilize the airplane at a level lower than the drift-down indication displayed on the FMS. So again... That, yeah, so... It the, drifted. The engine probably hitting the 
control surfaces was not good. Probably did affect how the plane would react. Yes. But they were able to to like stabilize flight enough to get to Canada. Right. So still speaks to the airplane flying for hours with a relatively severe issue. They found that the descent was made to the drift down level flight level 270 around 7,000 feet below the level calculated by the FMS. This did not lead to conflicts with other aircraft and did not lead to a significant risk due to the absence of obstacles on the route. Needless to say, you're on the middle of nowhere. There's not a whole lot to hit. But they weren't the only airplane up there. That's actually a very, very, very busy airspace because there's a lot of transatlantic crossings. But they thankfully weren't in the way of anybody. They didn't... Con- they didn't have any issues with conflicting traffic. They found that the airplane landed without any other anomaly. So, just that's the engine. That's good. Yes, just the engine. And that's why they became the focus. And that is also a good thing, because oftentimes we see that one thing can lead to another, can lead to another, and in this case, the airplane did a good job of not letting that one thing lead to another. Yes. They found that the original first officer tried to stop the CVR on the arrival of the airplane, but was unable to do so due to an error in the onboard aircraft documents. He tried to stop the CVR? Yes. It continued... So that it wouldn't record over itself. Oh, okay, okay, yes. got it. So it continued recording past the engine shutdown. However, thankfully, the CVR automatically stopped five minutes after the last engine was shut down in accordance with the Airbus end of recording logic. It's literally program to do that yes be I mean, it, that's a good thing be it that they're all generally solid state now also that means that it wouldn't like you wouldn't hear another recording over top of that one it would just start losing data that's separate right but in this case it kept that whole flight as one piece of data oh that's nice yes they found that the goose bay air terminal cannot simultaneously handle the number of passengers in an a380 consequently they were authorized to leave the airplane in small groups before returning to the aircraft in which they stayed for around 16 hours. They were then rerouted to their final destination on two airplanes. Again, that would just suck. Yes. I mean, I get why they had to do it. It's a whole borders thing, right? Right. But that still sucks. (laughs) Right. So this was all their initial findings that they put in the original report. Then they have a later section. The later section is everything they found in the time between that airplane being examined and the time they actually found all the pieces figured out what was going on, and finally released this report recently. They found that a fragment of the fan hub was found in South Greenland under the ice 21 months after the accident. And like 20 feet down. Yeah, it's crazy. They found that the fragment was analyzed and revealed that the failure, which originated in a macro zone in the subsurface of a blade slot bottom, occurred due to a cold dwell fatigue phenomenon. The crack progressed for around 1,650 cycles until the total failure of the hub. They found that the predicted number of life cycles for the hub was 15,000 cycles. That didn't happen. Nope. They found that this failure was neither anticipated nor prevented by an operational or maintenance action. So, they never found it. Also, I feel like they wouldn't be looking in the hub itself. For cracks. There are still a lot of procedures well, to do that. They do still look for it because it does still have well, yes, but a cycle I f- limit. I feel like every time we've talked about it, it's always been a fan blade, right? Well, it's a thinner part and more susceptible to right. failure. But, arguably too, we're used to fatigue cycles and even low failure fatigue cycles are still usually higher than this one because this is very different. So they still anticipate, especially with modern technology, that the fan blade would last that 15,000 cycles. So 
they should start inspecting it a little later into that lifetime, more regularly. That's what they anticipated. That's with normal fatigue. Yeah, on off, on off. On off. This kind of fatigue, they weren't anticipating, and so they weren't anticipating having to inspect them for this at such a low cycle rate. It was less than a quarter through its life. Yes. So, I kind of get it. Yeah. Per their maintenance, they would not have detected it. It was actually about a... Yeah, it was... Yeah. 23%. Than, yeah, it was about 23% of its... Yeah. They found that the hub production inspections did not reveal any anomalies. So when it was inspected, they didn't find it. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean much because they're looking for a very small area, and I get that. And also, might not have been there when they did the inspection. They found that the macro zone where the crack was initiated was of an order of magnitude larger and more intense than the average MTR observed by the manufacturer, both in other zones of the engine number four hub and in hubs from the same billet. So it was a particularly large macro zone. Yes. They found that the cold well fatigue phenomenon brought to light by this accident was taken into account neither in the engine certification nor in the engine design. So they just didn't think about it at all. And that was, again, because it has both the cubic and the hexagonal. There, It shouldn't have had cold dwell fatigue. Yes. As they, that science had proven to that point. But it turned out that they could clump, basically. Yep. And they did. They clumped. Freaking structure of metal. <laughs> yeah, God, metal structures. Atomic metal structures. Ugh. Ugh. God. God, don't they know not to clump? Gosh, get good, yeah. man. God. Get good. It, it really validates some of the classes I took, though. <laughs> it does. So the question is now in your generation of engineer, how can you fix this? I know what they say, but there's got to be some kind of solution. They're working on it. I know. They, you can be part of that. When I was doing some of the research for this episode, there's still papers being released on it, like, to this day. Oh, absolutely. This was not very long ago. They found that at the time of the part design and engine certification, it was accepted by the scientific community, the industry, and the certification authorities that TI-64, or Titanium-64, was not sensitive to the cold-dwell fatigue phenomenon. So they really didn't know until this accident that that was just a thing. Well, they thought it was just... On this specific kind. Titanium. Right, exactly. That's just what she said. Oh, yeah, you just put another metal in there, it should be fine, right? Right. Mm, Nope. So it, this is so part of why this is so interesting too is because this is so recent because this report is so recent the accident is pretty recent it shows that every time we advance in technology we add a problem we didn't even know existed would exist yeah it's that same thing in aviation kind of over and over again and it's like yes you think we're gonna figure everything out before something happens but it's basically impossible and that's kind of what this accident proves because now we're getting down to the atomic level I mean it's kind of insane. Yeah, so I pulled up Google Scholar and just looked up cold dwell fatigue in titanium 6.4 and papers published in 2021. And there's 10 pages of results. And one of them actually seems promising. It was published in the Journal of Fatigue. Okay, I didn't know that was a thing. There is a journal for everything. I'm sure there is. And it is titled, Experimental and Crystal Plasticity Modeling Study on the Crack Initiation in Microtexture Regions of Titanium-6 Aluminum-4 Vanadium During High Cycle Fatigue Tests. It's not very catchy, is it? No. They never are. <laughs> Come on. How, how, it's, how, it's people scientific. won't read it. <laughs> scientific. But I can tell catchy. from that one, because of such a descriptive title, how relevant it is to this particular subject. Yes. Now, because I am no longer a university student, I can't just open up this thing and read it. So usually if you just contact the author, they'll send it to you, which hot 
topic, like, yeah. if you want to access a journal article and you can't afford it, just contact the author. They'll probably send it to you. They yeah. don't make money off of it. Right. And also to clarify something, the 6-4 in titanium is for 6% aluminum, 4% vanadium. Yes, I mentioned those particular metals earlier, but yes. that's the meaning. That's what 6 and 4 stand for. 6% and 4%. And the rest is titanium. The rest yep. is titanium. That's why it's titanium, 6-4. There's not really a probable cause for this. There kind of is, so I'll... I'll read the thing from the report. <laughs> the aeroplane... Excellent. <laughs> French. <laughs> yes. The aeroplane suffered an uncontained failure of the engine installed in the right outer position, engine number four, while in cruise climbed to flight level 380 overhead Greenland. No forewarning had preceded this failure. The fans separated from the engine, bringing about the separation of numerous pieces of debris. The loss of these parts followed a random path, but did not cause any substantial damage to the aeroplane. Contributing factors. The following factors may have contributed to the failure of the fan hub on engine four. Engine designers slash manufacturers lack of knowledge of the cold dwell fatigue phenomenon in the titanium alloy titanium 6-4. Absence of instructions from the certification bodies about taking into account macro zones and the cold dwell fatigue phenomenon in the critical parts of an engine when demonstrating conformity. Absence of non-destructive means to detect the presence of unusual macro zones in titanium alloy parts and an increase in the risk of having large macrozones with increased intensity in the titanium 6.4 due to bigger engines, and in particular, bigger fans. So that's another reason this hasn't really happened before now. Small versus big. These engines are freaking huge. Yeah, they are Gigantic. Huge. Yeah, they are pretty enormous. We've never had engines this big in history. Right. That's why so, when they fail, it's pretty scary. But, also, with a lot of recent incidents, including the one here in Denver, we've proven the airplanes are pretty ridiculously safe, even with... Yes. One massive engine having a massive blowout. But with having these bigger parts all forged from one piece of titanium alloy, usually, mm -hmm. you have, just from, like, the theory of chaos, you have a greater chance of having a big macro zone. Right. Right. And a lot harder to detect because it's a lot more area to try to find an atomic level well, problem. And there's, there's currently no non-destructive method to find macro zones. Right. The only way to find it is to destroy the part. Yeah, which that's was already useless. Yeah, so they have two interesting sections at the end of this. They have a recommendation section. Before that, they have measures taken since occurrence. Literally, that's the name of the section. Section four. So I'm just going to sum up what these are because they're, there's they go into a lot of depth that they we are, just don't need to go into. They are verbose. They are verbose. So the first one is preservation of flight recorders. This has to do with the CVR. And they found out that basically some of the circuit breakers were set incorrectly for the CVR to actually operate the way it was supposed to. It worked. But for the procedures for the A380, actually, there's certain there's certain circuit breakers that were supposed to be in and they weren't. So basically, they talked about how Air France revamped their procedures for the A380, made sure that this was all correct so that the CVR would always operate correctly. It's also the reason why the first officer thought he had to shut it down at the end of the flight, when instead it was just going to automatically end the recording. And so it's all part of that training on the CVR and making sure that it's up to par with Airbus's actual operations of the A380 and the CVR. Second section is inspection of the GP7270 fan hubs just after the accident. So this is interesting because they did inspect every single fan blade hub on every single one of these engine, engines, types. engine types in the world, which 
There actually isn't a whole lot of them because most of the A380s don't fly this type of engine. Yeah, most of them fly the Rolls Royce. Yes, most of them do fly the Rolls Royce. So, that said, they inspected all of them, and among all of them, they found 19, actually, that had problems. Only two of which were beyond repair. The rest of them were repaired and returned to service. But they did find 19 hubs with a pretty similar problem. And they ended up having a very, very, very complex system or series of ADs and... Service bulletins. Service bulletins that followed this accident. Even between the time of the, the incident and the recovery of the fan blade. They were still doing ADs and service bulletins and inspections and such. I mean, it, it's complicated. Like, here's the timeline. Mm. Oh, they by the way. These, things. these inspections were done before they knew that it was a cold dwell fatigue failure. Mm-hmm. So they were just looking for any kind of failure, and yes. some of them were, like, from being hit. Right. With okay. debris. That does so happen. It's not saying that all of them have cold dwell fatigue failures. It's just saying they had any kind of failure. Right. A failure. Right. On top of that, they did find a, a lot of other hubs that had other, yes, minor and major things. There were 30 more hubs, 3,500 cycles with initial publication, and 20 additional hubs in Revision 1. 58 hubs with a service life of more than 3,500 cycles were inspected. So basically, within all these different ones, they found many issues like this. Not fatigue necessarily, but it does cause problems. And so they wanted to fix that. And they did. Having inspected all of them, it did make a big leap forward, and they, we'll get to this, but in the recommendations, they do give a forward thought on what to do with that information. Section 3, design of a new fan blade lock ring. So, rather than keeping this titanium lock ring, basically, they're suggesting doing something else. <laughs> that doesn't break. I don't think that the failure was in the fan blade lock ring. Not exactly. I but think it's just a different part that they want to this address. This relatively short. I can read this one out loud. Okay. During the investigation before the examination of the fan hub fragments found in Greenland, this failure simulations combined with the in-service inspection results gave rise to a scenario in which a maintenance operation to remove the fan blade lock ring could be at the origin of the damage observed on the front face of the fan hub, leading to the hub failure. The ring removal operation was described as difficult by the operators because of its stiffness. The marks found during the hub and surface inspections were attributed to the use of inappropriate tools. The engine manufacturer has designed a new blade lock ring. The new ring is more elastic, which facilitates the maintenance operations. Its deployment in the fleet started on the 25th of November 2019. So... Yes, the lock ring wasn't the actual problem, but basically they wanted it to be a different substance anyways because the technicians that were working well the te- the technicians that were working on it were causing gouges in the hub itself that could have eventually led to a failure. And that's not good. That's prob- that probably attributes to some of the other failures that were found. Very well could be. I wouldn't be surprised in the slightest. Last one in this section 4 is uh, number 4. Inspections since examination of engine number four fan hub, so specifically of this hub, they changed the frequency of the inspection. Yeah, so they wanted to do ultrasonic inspections in addition to the uh, eddy current inspections, and they wanted to do the ultrasonic inspections at a 
frequency of every 330 cycles. Based on what I've seen of fatigue failure so far, most of the time between crack initiation and critical crack length is greater than 330 cycles. So if you're inspecting every 330 cycles, you will find it. Right. That's the idea is you want to find it long before it becomes a real problem. Because at 330 cycles, it's more likely to be repairable too, right? So because it doesn't get quite as far, they're more likely to be able to do something about it. So that's important too. So now we move on to the safety recommendations. There's actually only a couple of these, but they're extremely long-winded about this. And so I'm just going to sum this up. But the, the gist of this is they wanted to have a lot more inspection on the parts, a lot more uh, observation of these new materials and how uh, titanium 6.4 actually has an effect on service life of an engine, a fan hub, you know, a fan hub, uh, things like that. Like they just want to know how this is overall actually affecting the industry and kind of fix these problems. There's a lot more to it than that, but that's the, in short, they suggested adjusting the manufacturing process to be more aware for these uh, cracks, try to avoid them, be more proactive in finding the macro zones before the hub ever actually leaves. Not that they know it can really actually be a problem. Uh, Production checks, so kind of the same thing. When the part's in production and along any part of the production process, just making sure that, you know, there's no problems. In-service monitoring. Biggest thing, right? Once it's on the airplane, that's when it's more likely to fail. So in-service checks way more regularly. There was uh, recommendations to both the FAA and the EASA and Which the EASA is the European equivalent of the FAA. Yes. They made several recommendations about the material itself and making sure that they're aware of the material, how it handled, you know, and how often to inspect and to report findings, basically. And that's pretty much it. So their entire focus really centralized around that, that material, the fan hub, and the failure. Because obviously, that's all that went wrong with the C380. And that's pretty right. remarkable. Because the A380 was repaired and returned to service. And then Air France retired all of them. During because COVID. Because of COVID. Yep. So it is currently being stored at an airport with two other Air France A380s and three former Singapore Airlines A380s. Yeah. It's not uncommon. Most of the A380s are grounded still and will be for a while. And a lot of the airlines that fly them have actually decided not to fly them ever again. And that is too bad. But at the same time, it kind of makes sense because a lot of people, while there are going to be a lot of people traveling, they aren't necessarily going to want to travel with 600 people. Right. (laughs) And on top of that, the planes just weren't very economic to begin with in the first place. The airlines that did have them, they were pretty much a money suck. They didn't do a whole lot. So Air France, British Airways, the likes of them, they really didn't. not, Not great. And the last one, I believe, was just manufactured like two weeks ago for Emirates. So Not even a week ago. It was just a week ago. They're done. Yes, the A380 is done being built for good. They will not make any more of them. That's pretty much it. But it's interesting because it brings it forward a lot. Like, there's so much more in this investigation that brought technology forward, and this shows you how far we've come. Because in the episode for next week, you will see how short they used to be. There you go. New science. New science. My brain hurts. It's good. Imagine mine. My heart hurts. (laughs) My heart hurts. 
Thanks to everyone for listening. As always, remember, next month's listener stories are rainy stories, as we said at the beginning of the episode. So you can start sending those in now. Also, thanks to all our patrons, as always, for listening and supporting us. Yeah, we did our uh, monthly Zoom calls uh, with a couple of our new patrons yesterday, and it was actually a lot of fun. It was, It really is, every time. So if you aren't a patron... And you would think you would enjoy that, you should become one. And if not, that's okay. Yeah, go check it out on uh, our website there. Again, you can check all the photos and stuff and sources for this episode on the website. I highly recommend it because there was a lot of visuals and science stuff that would make more sense with the visuals. So check it out. And thank you again for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy, and have a good week. We'll catch you next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hardlandings Podcast and on Twitter at Hardlandings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.